welcome to the fourth episode of Oakleaf at Work, where we discuss the often complex but certainly important topics within workplace mental health. My name is Jen Clay, and today my guest is Jeff McDonald. Jeff is co-founder of Charity Minds at Work and former former global VP of HR for Unilever. He's best known as a global advocate, campaigner, and who is passionate about addressing the stigma of mental health in workplaces and helping organizations embed purpose as a key driver of business performance. So I'm delighted to speak with Jeff about stigma, his personal experiences and advice on how to talk about one's own mental health at work. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you, Jen. And uh, lovely to hear hear your voice and to, participate in this podcast with you. So thank you for having me. Ah, of course. Uh, No, wonderful. Um, I guess to kickstart the conversation, um, do you want to tell me just a a bit about your background um, and how you came to work in the mental health space? Mm. Yeah, so look, I've got a fairly eclectic background, I suppose. Um, I'm a South African, grew up in South Africa. went to school and university there, and then went off to do what I was very passionate about, which was, um, which was teaching. Spent three years teaching uh, in schools in South Africa, and then stumbled on a company called Unilever, and uh, had a wonderful 25 years working for Unilever all over the world, uh, culminating in the global head of HR for all of our marketing, communications, and sustainability efforts. But while I was working for Unilever in 2008, I got very, very ill with anxiety-fueled depression. And, um, you know, I mean, I so remember that day that I, I woke up with a terrible panic attack, which, which essentially was the last straw that broke the camel's back and um, ended up in a doctor's rooms and was diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression. But as I left that doctor's rooms, I I made a decision that I wouldn't be burdened by the stigma that is associated with mental ill health. And in many ways, Jen, that that decision saved my life. Mm. Um, Now, I had a few things in my favor in making that decision. You know, one is I've kind of got the sort of personality where I wear my heart on my sleeve. So what you see is what you get. So I'm not very good at masking my feelings. Um, I think the other is, I had a diagnosis, which in many ways liberated me, which helped me to understand what was wrong with me. Uh, I had a line manager at the time who had a very, what I would call, compassionate relationship to mental ill health. I was so, so lucky. And, um, and fourthly, I was, you know, I was a very senior HR person, so I'd, I'd, I'd built 20 years of credibility behind me. Um, I wasn't a young manager or a junior manager wanting to make a career out of Unilever. And, um, so those were very important factors, which in many ways empowered me to be able to make that decision and to, um, and to speak about my illness. And um, in my darkest, darkest moments, the only thing that kept me alive was probably the most powerful emotion in the world, which is called love. Mm. And um, I was only able to experience that sense of love because I'd been open about what was wrong with me. And I had, you know, I think everybody to a T, whether it was my family, some of my colleagues at work, some of my close friends, that outpouring of love 
in my darkest moments, just knowing that I was loved by my 10-year-old, you know, just knowing that I was loved by my line manager is what kept me going, together with a sense of hope. You know, I had a colleague who I used to meet every 10 days who'd been so ill a couple of years before I was ill. Um, and, he, and I used to meet with him every 10 days and I saw he was better from, anxiety, from his own depressive episode. And, and I used to look at this guy and think, you know what? One can get better. One can recover. And I suppose the combination of love and hope, those two emotions were probably the most powerful ingredients that contributed to my recovery. I went back into Unilever. I spent another six years working for Unilever. But then in 2012, I lost a very good friend to suicide. And, um, and I suppose that was the catalyst for me getting into the whole area of mental health because, you know, here was this friend of mine, you know, I think it was Carl Jung who once said, the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. And he was that sort of person. You know, he brought so much light and energy to everything that he did. And now he was gone. But he was an alpha male. Uh, he couldn't really talk about his emotional and mental struggles. And instead, he died by suicide. And uh, that night, I lay in bed and I thought to myself, you know what? Stigma has just killed my friend. Any physical ailment, a common physical ailment, or any physical ailment, he, he would have gone and seen a doctor. He would have had the right kind of conversations to get himself better. But because he was struggling mentally and emotionally, he didn't think he could do that. And I lay there and I just thought, you know, that's not fair. It's not fair in the 21st century when we're all mental, we're all emotional, we're all physical, and some of us would say we're all, we're all spiritual, um, mm -hmm. yet we, we struggle to talk about our mental and emotional um, challenges when we need to. And, um, and so that night I wrote to Alistair Campbell here in the UK. Um, he was doing a lot of advocacy and campaigning work at the time. And I just thought if I could just meet with him, he would open some doors for me to begin a journey around addressing the stigma of mental ill health in workplaces. Within 10 minutes, I had a response from him. A week later, we met up in Belsize Park. And ever since that day, probably October, November of 2012, he began to open those doors, which allowed me to take very tiny footsteps on a journey filled with a very deep sense of purpose. And that is to create workplaces, family groups, friendship groups, where we can all just feel absolutely comfortable, feel that we've genuinely got the choice to just put our hand up and to just mm -hmm. ask for some help if we're struggling with a common form of mental ill health. And, you know, I then led a piece of work in Unilever for about a year and a half, co-led a piece of work in Unilever around breaking stigma, saw an amazing, amazing impact. And in middle of 2014, decided to leave and take take that work to the world and you know, so that's how I've got into the whole area of of mental health and mental ill health. Mm, so it's such a powerful story um, and I have heard it uh, once before but no it doesn't lose any of its power the second time Jeff and, and just oh, thank, thank you, you for, for, for sharing and um, I'm curious kind of if we go back to near the start of your, your journey that yeah. you received that diagnosis you mentioned that you were um, lucky to have a passionate line manager. Did you know that before having that first conversation? And can you talk a little bit perhaps about kind of leading up to and having and kind of disclosing that, gosh, I'm struggling yeah. with my mental health. And how, how, kind of how did yeah, that you Well, it, I'll tell you how it happened. I mean, well, yes, I did know that he had a compassionate relationship because mm. I think I think maybe a year or two years prior to my crucible moment in life in 2008, a colleague of ours, of both mine and his, died by suicide. Um, mm -hmm. 
And, um, you know, I think that was a real wake up call for, for all of us. And, uh, and I think, you know, he was very, very close to that individual. And um, I think he began to become more curious and understanding, which led to a greater sense of compassion around mental ill health. So, yeah. so yes, I knew that he did have that kind of compassionate relationship. I, I never, I never needed to go and have a conversation with him because you know what happened was you know that I, I spoke about that panic attack and it happened mm. at midnight and um and the next morning I just couldn't get myself out of bed I mean yeah no ways I could get out of bed I was far too anxious and um you know I go off to the doctor and and my wife Debbie she phoned I mean his, the guy's name's Keith Weed he was the, at the time he was running the home care business for Unilever globally and she phoned Keith and said to Keith, Jeff, you know, Jeff's not well. Um, he's been signed off for at least three months and he's suffering from anxiety, fuel depression. Mm. Guess, what? Guess what? That evening, you know, there he was on the doorstep uh, coming to see me. Wow. So I was in some ways I was quite lucky that one, my wife had the conversation with him. Yeah. Did. Um, and secondly, <clears throat> um, I didn't need to, to have that conversation. Uh, instead, you know, there he was on the doorstep coming to reassure me and provide me with the, you know, with the support and the love and the care that mm. I desperately needed. Mm. And so much of this is about connecting, you know, human connection, person to person yeah. and um, enabling an environment where that thrives. Um, I wonder, so it's been, you know, gosh, a decade now since you've had this real drive and purpose to create more mentally healthy workplaces and you know fight back against, against the stigma of mental ill health um right now we are seeing increased attention in the kind of business community as a whole on mental health and there's um lots more resource uh and perhaps it's uh featuring more in in conversations at top levels of businesses around how do we create uh, strategy and, and plans and initiatives, et cetera, et cetera. Can, looking at kind of with the experience that you've had over the last decade, what are some of the main barriers, barriers or perhaps challenges in translating, getting this good intentioned, in, in an ideal scenario, good intentioned um, plan, with resource and the backing senior leadership translating into the sort of, of care, support and love that you received and translating into actual employees having real, honest and supported conversations. Um, you know, the one-to-one -one going from the macro to the micro. Yeah. How do we, how do we make, make sure that's pulled through? Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a very big question um, uh, with lots and lots of complexities um, within that question. But, but you know, I mean, at, at a very simple level, you know, I think, I think workplaces have, the time has come for workplaces to genuinely, genuinely think about how do they become more human? Mm. You know, how, how do we see in people who I work with and who I work for, 
how, how do we see the humanness in those individuals rather than these kind of units of production mm. um, <clears throat> you know and 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 what is the what is both the moral case and what is the business case for for becoming a more human centric organization um, and I think that you know, I, I think if you look at the generation of leaders who are in very senior roles, um, you know, that generation is, is still burdened by stigma, you know. Um, I think if, if the youngsters of today were in those senior roles, I think they would be, they would be very up for you know, these sorts of conversations and sharing their own vulnerabilities and their own experiences. And so, so I think, you know, in the first instance, we need to, we need to, we need to find a way of, of, of bringing that humanness back into organizations. And the way in which I talk about that is to, is to think about, what I think is probably the most critical enabler of the performance of an individual and a team in an organization. And I could probably take it to an organizational level. And for me, the most critical enabler of performance, because I think if you want these senior people to really embrace this, I mean, there's got to be a, there's got to be a kind of a performance edge to this. And for me, the most critical enabler of performance is the energy of people. Mm. You know, we all know what it's like to work in a team or to work with individuals who bring energy and passion to what they are doing. Um, and we know how those teams perform, how those organizations perform, where you walk yeah. in and you just feel the energy and you feel the passion. And, you know, none of us can be energetic without being healthy, yeah. physically, emotionally, mentally, and some of those that are listening to us today would say also spiritually. And mm. so making this link between energy, health, stroke, well-being, and performance, and, and, and really, you know, really showing how that can enhance the performance of the organization, talking about mm. this concept of energy and passion. You know, I, I mean, I don't love, I, you know, my not not that I don't love this, but my experience is, you know, language is really important, and and you know, sometimes the word well-being, immediately it has these sort of soft, cuddly connotations, and mm-hmm. you know, the chief financial officer rolls their eyes at this kind of well-being, fluffy stuff. Well, it's not fluffy, mm. you know. It's about energy and passion, and people can only be energized and passionate if they are healthy, and they can only be. And then they can perform and give of their best. So, so I think in the first instance, you know, we've got to we've got to make that case, and we've got to we've got to show and bring that to life for these senior leaders. Yeah. And I think the other thing is the other thing is that we, you know, there is there is something about there is something about a leader's ethical responsibilities that you know it is it is only the right thing to be doing to make sure that when people work for you, that they feel that they are growing, they are developing, that they are, their lives are being enhanced. You know, I think it is, 
it's it's irresponsible for leaders to be damaging people in terms of their levels of stress. Um, and so there's kind of the moral case to this as well. But I think overlying all of that, Jen, you know, is this thing around stigma, is the stigma. And so, you know, how do we first address the stigma? And once we've addressed the stigma, then we can have the sorts of conversations one-to-one, human-to-human, where it feels safe and okay to have these conversations. Yes. And, yes. And, and, and to get to a really practical level, in order to address stigma, the two most powerful levers in addressing stigma is training. It's not difficult <laughs> to train your employees around mental health and mental ill health and give them some basic training. Every single employee, not just a, mental, a first aider on a floor, every single employee. You know, we do it for safety. You can't work for an organization these days without getting some sort of safety training. Yes. And, I, and I think, you know, we, we, if we want to address the stigma, first of all, we've got, we've got to train every single employee. But we can only, we'll only do that if we are prepared to put the financial and the human resource investment behind this because we see it, one, as a duty of care, but also as a performance driver. And then the second, for me, most powerful way of addressing stigma and creating these safer spaces to work is when we get influential people, influential people in the organization sharing their own stories, sharing mm. their own crucible moments in life or sharing a story of somebody that is close to them. And by the way, they've got permission of those people to share that story. But sharing those stories and bringing those stories to life and allowing people to share um, their own stories, you know, that, I mean, there's no rocket science in that. There's no rocket science in that. Mm. Yes, you can do some campaigning. And yes, you must make sure you've got all the support resources in place. But for me, the two most powerful levers is training and storytelling. Yes. But, but, but they both require a will to do it, a will to do it. Mm. And you know what sometimes is so sad, uh, Jen, is that I sometimes see that will to do it after there's been a tragedy in an organization, after somebody has lost their, you know, their life, and then suddenly everybody is kind of, you know, is, is, is aware of this and wishes they'd done things differently. And so therefore, what can, you know, why do we need to wait for that to happen in organizations? Mm. You know, why can't we just create, you know, these more human-centric organizations where, where the health and the well-being of every single employee is the most critical enabler of performance, and therefore we want to protect it, we want to enhance it, because it's going to drive the overall performance of this organization. We're going to be able to attract great talent, we're going to be able to retain people, you know, we're going to have a great brand out there. Um, and yeah, you know, sometimes it just seems so obvious to me, but there, for some reason, and I think it's because of stigma, there is still this kind of this, I don't know, whether people are afraid of having these conversations. Yeah. Eh? Um, they're afraid of being vulnerable because that's not part of the stereotype of senior leaders to show vulnerability. Um, and the more we can encourage that, the greater we create a more human-centric organization where people can feel 
and bring their whole selves to work. Mm, absolutely. And what's great is we've had it for, a, a, I would say, a number of years, but we have increasingly more and more data and evidence that points to just what you said, which is that high quality training with having people sharing their lived experience, you know, their personal experiences of, of you know, just life and the challenges and ups and downs and um, you know mental good mental health and poor mental health that that brings is you know is the number one way to to reduce absolutely and I think what you touched on about stigma being you know this big barrier to a whole lot of of kind of good intentioned programs or initiatives or say there is the resource and the will and the money but if stigma isn't addressed then all the benefits from those cannot necessarily flow how, yeah. how they should yeah. in it because it's yeah. it's it's not just you know experience stigma you know it's not just the stigma that someone feels for example they share that they're struggling with anxiety and maybe someone says oh shouldn't you be in a different job you know it's not necessarily just experience it's the issue of anticipated stigma yes. um, I think so, you know for a, a time to change survey, I think it was 2017 now, you know, said that uh, 95% of staff who took a um, day off uh, sick to distress gave a different reason. Yeah. 95%, you know, this, and it's likely that a number of those people had line managers who would have responded positively if they mm. opened up about their yeah. stress. But unless you create an environment where everyone knows that for sure, and then you have the ability to, to be confident in reducing those barriers and walls and, and um, that you have up, of course, people are going to err on the side of, of safety and, and not yeah. disclosing. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's the having people share their stories just like you've shared. And, and um, it's that's, and especially as you say, influential and well-respected individuals in the workplace. And that, and that doesn't mean they have to be senior. You know, it could be a shift manager in a factory mm. you know, who is influential and well-respected. Um, not that I'm, you know, I'm just saying that those influential people um, should should kind of be representative of all levels of the organization. Mm. So you mm. can't just have the shift manager and then the CEO or CFO are not prepared to also share some of their stories mm. or members of the executive. Um, but if we can find those influential leaders vertically across the organization and getting them to, to share, um, mm. I think is very powerful. Absolutely. But, you know, I saw a lovely campaign in an organization the other day, which was, um, which essentially was called a, the, the green armband campaign. And, and basically what it was, was it was, it was individuals who, who, who felt that they had a truly compassionate relationship to mental ill health. They they would they they were encouraged to wear a green armband. So if you got into the lift and you were really struggling and you were a I don't know you know a middle manager or a junior manager or even a senior manager mm. and you saw somebody in the lift wearing a green armband, you knew that that was somebody that you could go and open up and have a conversation and talk to. <laughs> you know, I, I think that you know I think that you know, and so therefore it kind of almost it takes away that that sense of fear and trepidation yes, you know, because you know that that person or they're wearing a purple lanyard and you know that those are the people in the organization that you can go and have these conversations with. 
Yeah, I really like that. It gives a silent green light. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps that they they get it. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, and that could perhaps you know help with my my kind of next question, which is zooming into the individual. Um, you know, if if someone listening to this is struggling right now, let's say with depression, hasn't told anyone at work, and they're not sure how their manager or colleagues will respond. Perhaps they don't know um, if those around them, um, you know, have uh, had experience themselves or, or would react positively. What would your advice be? I would not advise them to talk to those people then. Mm. You know, I would advise them to rather have a conversation with their best friend, with their partner, uh, with somebody that they really know that you know that they love that they trust um i mean go and see a doctor and go and have the conversation with a doctor um around how you feel and you know so so you know i think we've got to be really really careful that um you know that people um sort of just be immediately go blurting out and starting to talk about this stuff when, when they are not sure um, about the, you know, about the organization's maturity and acceptance of mental ill health as a, as, you know, as, as, as a real, as something real and, and a real challenge for, for certain individuals. So, so I always, I always advise individuals to you know what does your ceo think about this what does your chief hr officer think about this what does your line manager think about this i mean what has the organization been doing over the last two or three years to truly address the stigma and if they if they're doing very little in that space then i would say don't have the conversation at work but please please go and have the conversation with somebody that you trust that you love and if you can't find anybody like that out there then then, then go and see a doctor, you know, go and see a doctor and have the conversation with the doctor. Hmm. Oh, no, thank you for that. And I think you bring up such a good point around kind of safety and, and how, you know, kind of being open is really important, but it needs to be in <laughs> within an environment that um, will respond positively and supportively. Um, and the onerous is not just on the individuals who are struggling. It's actually not. It's on the organization as a whole to be able to. Exactly. Culture. Um, I guess just to, to end, do you have any thoughts on kind of um, some ways that, you know, everyone listening might combat stigma in their own workplaces or, you know. Yeah, I do. You know, I mean, I, I think, as I said to you, look, at an organizational level, there's this, you know, I think there's, there's training, there's campaigning, there's storytelling, mm. and there's the kind of making sure you've got support resources in place. Because if you get those first three things right, good storytelling, good training for everybody, lots of campaigning, people will start to ask for help and therefore you better have the support resources in place. So that's kind of at an organizational level. Mm -hmm. But you know, Jen, I, I always say that, you know, we don't need organizations. We don't have to wait for organizations. I think there, there are three things that all of us could, could just do individually within mm -hmm. our organizations. And the first one is, and as people listen to this, is, is truly sit back and just reflect for yourself as an individual, what is your relationship to mental ill health? You know, is your relationship one of intolerance where you would see somebody like me as some snowflake? 
or do you have a truly compassionate relationship to mental ill health? And for those that are listening who are intolerant, all I would ask them to do is go and be curious. So just go and be curious. Go and learn more about it. Go and read up about depression and anxiety. Go and talk to people who've suffered in the past. And if you can't find anybody, go to a homeless person in the street. They'll tell you what it's like to feel depressed mm. and to feel anxious. So that's the first thing we can all do is we can all just reflect on our own relationship to mental ill health. And if we are intolerant, just go and be curious. The second thing we can all do as individuals, just with a team, with a peer, is just start a conversation. Just, just have the, start the conversation. Just talk about you know, all the stuff around mental health and mental ill health and stress. What is it? And how can we go about, do we think we could go about breaking stigma? And have you ever come across anybody who might have suffered from depression or anxiety? What symptoms did they exhibit? Just get these conversations. Just start that conversation, even whether it's just a peer or within your team. Because I honestly believe that if you can just start the conversation, then anything is possible. Anything becomes possible. Mm -hmm. You know, John F. Kennedy started a conversation in the White House around some table about putting a man on the moon and bringing him back safely. It, it happened from one conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, so anything becomes possible. And then finally, finally, when people are ready, individuals are ready, when they feel coached, supported, they've got the right kind of permissions, you know, and I hate, I hate, to, I hate having to say this, but, but take, be courageous and, and share, share that story. Share mm. that story with some of your peers, with your line manager, with your team. Because every story that we tell, every story we tell is like sending a lifeboat out into the ocean with the billions of people who are suffering in silence. You know, when they hear your story, you know, they cling onto the lifeboat and they realize two things. One, they realize they're not alone. This is not something that's just happening to me. And the, the second thing they realize is that they, they're just normal. They're just normal mm. human beings. And something's just happened to them. There's nothing wrong with them. They're not weak. They're not strong. Something has just happened. And these things happen in our lives. And, you know, the more we can think about, you know, mental health and mental ill health. I mean, all of us, all of us struggle with mental ill health. Eh? We all have days where we feel anxious mm -hmm. or sad. You know, it, for me, the statistic is one in one. It's not one in four or one in yeah. six. But, yes, over time, you might have people who get really ill like I did. And yes, maybe that's one in four and one in six that are having to take three or six months off work or whatever the case might be. But you know, every single individual who is listening to us today, they can join you and I on this crusade by reflecting on their own relationship, by starting conversations, and when they're ready, tell their story. Thank you so much, Jeff. That's uh, so inspiring and encouraging um i think and what you just said will help workplaces but also just our communities become more human because we are all just human beings yeah. muddling your way through this life um no thank you so much um really valuable um uh, really appreciate your time um and people can find out more about jeff and his work Mind at, minds at work um, and uh, do you follow him on social media as well um, do you have anything else, else to say Jeff before we, we yeah they can also have a look at my website so it's jeffmcdonald.co.uk so you know there, there's some of my TED talks and, and some articles and a news and resources section that people might find of, of value jeffmcdonald.co.uk
That's great. And we'll put those links in the show notes right. as well. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. And okay. have a good rest of your day. Okay. Cheers, Jane. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Oakleaf at Work. Find out more about Oakleaf's charitable work, as well as the Mental Health Leaders Network on our website, oakleaf-enterprise.org, and reach out if you have any questions or comments to myself, Jen Clay. Thank you.